0: About chicken a la king, mango, and garbanzo, taboon, potatoes,
1: and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil ziti. granola fruit bar. Yeah. Look at all this beautiful food. Mm. Guys, it's time for a very special episode of Green Eggs and Dan. My guest today is one of my food idols. I always say that. I'm in entertainment, I see a lot of famous people, I never get starstruck by uh, movie stars and TV stars, food stars get me starstruck. And boy, does this guy get me starstruck. He's a journalist, a food writer. He's the author of 30 books, including the best-selling How to Cook Everything and VB6, one of the still, I I think, best diet books around, or not even diet book, how to eat books around, eat vegan before six. He has been recipient of the International Association of Culinary Professionals, Julia Child, and James Beard Awards for his writing. He was the opinions columnist for the New York Times, a food columnist for the paper's dining section, and the lead food writer for the New York Times magazine. His column, The Minimalist, one of my favorites, it ran in the New York Times for over 13 years Happy Bar Mitzvah. He also hosted the Minimalist Cooking Videos on the New York Times website, which are amazing. He is also finally the co-host of the fantastic podcast, Food with Mark Bittman. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mark Bittman, everyone. Welcome to the pod.
0: Thank you for having me. How
1: was that intro? Did I leave anything out?
0: I don't think you left anything out. Every time I hear that intro, I'm like, I have to rewrite that. (laughs) I have to rewrite that bio. But
1: yeah, no, it's fine. Listen, I, you're everyone knows who you are though. They don't need your bio. We met recently, you had me on your podcast. We became fast friends. We had, I, fun. we had fun. I was honored that you uh, would be on my podcast. And now it is time to put your fridge on blast.
0: That's just like straight to straight, we to, go that? straight to that. That's we'll what start happens. talking
1: after that. But we start with the fridges.
0: And you can say how not set up this. Well, I'd have to be really manipulative to have set this, this up. This
1: was very not set up. Mark actually forgot to send it to me. So right before we started, he, uh, he set this up. You can see his fridge on my Instagram at standupdan. Here's the thing, the fridge is kind of a weird fridge because there's a lot of plastic. It looks like a scene out of Dexter where, you know, everything is covered in plastic. <laughs> It's a lot of root vegetables for sure.
0: Well, it's sort of the time of year. You know, most root vegetables keep better in plastic than they do not. So some of these things are like months old. You know, you're just working your way yeah, through them.
1: Yeah. What is this uh, over here? This this uh, gruel sourdough starter. Oh, sourdough starter. Okay. Interesting. Is this your most viewed video? The uh, the no need bread.
0: I mean, it is one of the great ironies of. My career is that the most famous recipe I ever did was from somebody else. But yeah, Jim Leahy's no need bread. Absolutely. You got to give Jim no, the credit. I don't
1: think so. It's... <laughs> <laughs> no, but that recipe got so many people through the pandemic. It's such a wonderful recipe for how to make bread. I had never made bread before because I don't want to have this science experiment in my fridge.
0: Well, the original no need bread thing was yeast. So there is that. This is more... Uh a long term development of me and my co-author Kerry Conan of a whole grain sourdough bread. There's a book called Bitman Bread which details this. But so that's whole grain sourdough starter. That's not Jim Leahy's no need bread was yeast driven. Yeah. This is sourdough driven. But you know, we can get into that if you want to talk about bread for a half
1: hour. Listen, you taught me how to make bread uh not having to care about how to make bread, which was this that is hilarious,
0: though. This is really funny. The close up of the inside <laughs> of my fridge. I mean, I think that's that's young kale. We're gonna eat that tonight. I think. Is it
1: really? It looks it looks like arugula yeah. dandelionish to me. So so you've got underage kale <laughs> over here. You've got the yeah. uh, what is this over here? This is like a an Italian white.
0: It's an Italian white. That's pretty much what we're drinking is Italian really? white,
1: like Alto Adige type stuff. More southern than mm-hmm. northern, but it's a mix
0: of different things vermentino what's the grape from piamonte yeah just like the other catarato falangina too
1: many there's too many varietals in italy
0: there's so many. Uh, this one thing is driving me crazy at the moment. It'll come to me. I have to stop thinking. But no, no, no. Don't start. It'll like it'll. We'll drive ourselves crazy.
1: <laughs> I've lately been doing this cheat, which you have here, which makes me feel good about it, which is buying I, already peeled garlic cloves.
0: I mean, it is a cheat. I can't say I recommend it, but I also can't resist it because if you buy one of those tubs, then you use like ten cloves of garlic a day. <laughs> Like, you're like, I'll throw five in here. No problem. It's great. I love it. It's amazing.
1: It. I love doing it. It
0: is a cheat, but I have real garlic also. Maybe we'll I come mean, across mean I'm not that. judging.
1: Wait, so why do you have all these no. bags of root vegetables? Is it like a CSA type thing?
0: <clears throat> it is a CSA type thing. I live on a farm. We have a winter CSA. It is, the abundance is incredible, but it's. Well, and it's turnips, beets, yeah. ru- rutabaga, celeriac, potatoes, of course, radishes. You know what? Garlic, shallots. Uh, yeah, and it's just like in sur- parsnips, carrots. It's insurmountable. You just can't. But they are gradually. Like three weeks ago, those bottom two drawers you couldn't open and close them. I think you have a shot of them partially open, actually.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you couldn't like open and close them two weeks ago, but now it's dwindling. It's actually dwindling, and except for sweet potatoes, which you do not—I didn't mention—but you do not want to keep them in plastic bags. Every one of these things keeps better in plastic bags than not. So I mean, hence the plastic. How bags. much borscht can one man eat? I don't really even like <laughs> borscht, but I am making tonight a giant latke with no potatoes. Just like grate a bunch of root vegetables and turn them into a giant pancake. I really love doing that. Oh, that's that.
1: fun. Do you put you put an egg in it and any flour?
0: You put like a tablespoon of flour, two tablespoons of flour, that's enough. You don't need an egg. You can put an egg in it, but you don't need an egg. Beets are really good in that really? way. Yeah, amazing. Like a beet, what did we used to call it? A beet roasty. Like just great beets cook them in oh, the yeah. pan, press them together. It's so Rushti delicious. Rösti is
1: like a, like a Swiss-German type thing. It's-, so it's a latke without
0: onion, without egg, without matzo meal. I, I don't know what's wrong it's with a, those people, but it's that's what it is. a goyish latka. <laughs> it's a goyish <laughs> latke, exactly.
1: Look, this is a functional fridge. This is what a seasonal fridge looks like if you're eating seasonal. <laughs> it kind of is, right. You know, it's just a bunch of seasonal veg and... Some booze to watch it down with.
0: There might, you know, on many nights there'd be a piece of fish or meat defrosting in there, but a vegetarian is coming for dinner, so that's not Mm -hmm. happening. I think. I think I shot the door. Also, if you want to look at the door, but okay, here's your door. I mean, this looks like everybody else's door, right? It's a bunch of stuff in jars. Yeah,
1: you got the jars in the door. Let's see if there's anything exciting here. You've got
0: some cheese up there,
1: butter up top butter and cheese
0: cheese cheese yeah a beer some mayonnaise is that a negro Modelo? <laughs> it's a negro
1: Modelo. i like that everything in your fridge is so hyper seasonal but your beers come from mexico
0: <laughs> right
1: <laughs> oh my god wait a second mark bitman yes. is that smuckers
0: chocolate sauce my partner bought it not me but i don't have the heart to okay. throw it out
1: <laughs> wow you know, that's...
0: Well, sometimes people stay at my house and they buy shit also, so, you know. <laughs> and then... Hot sauce made by a friend of mine, more alcohol to wash things down. I wonder if there's anything interesting in here. Wait, what is, this, what is this crap really.
1: bottle of one liter Pinot Grigio you have here?
0: No, no, 1.5 liter Wait, Pinot Wait, is it crappy Grigio or is it good? I mean, for $8 <laughs> or
1: whatever it costs, really good. Oh my God, Mark Bittman is... You know,
0: what, do you get to like, Holding me up to some standard of oh, Mark Bittman only drinks eighty-two Bordeaux.
1: It's not happening. Okay, there's a there's a happy medium between eighty-two Bordeaux and wine that you got at Seven Eleven.
0: No, it's better than that. It is better than that. I don't know how oh, much. Better
1: than uh, that. Is this the
0: oh yeah, Gr- Grichetto. There's one of the weird grapes yeah, we all drink. These
1: weird Italians. All right, you got the Sriracha classic,
0: which I can't stand really, but it's really? there.
1: What, what, why don't you like it?
0: It's just not my favorite hot sauce. That stuff on the right is goku Jang, I think. Or Goku-charo, I think it's called. Another Negro Modelo. Yeah, you gotta
1: have one in every row.
0: Some vitamins. The thing on the left, I think, is um, local cider, since you're such... Uh, so judgmental about what we drink <laughs> so we have some local cider it's
1: just there's such a range you know what i mean this is uh, what's but yeah. it's what i like about it like
0: what are most people's fridges look people like
1: either super bougie or super you know uh da- down home and yours is a little mix of both like you have oh my root vegetables came straight from the farm but i also have <laughs> smucker's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> smucker's <chocolate sauce. laughs> Chocolate syrup, yeah, and I like it too. So let's look at that bottom
0: shelf. I'm curious Down now. Here, I think the thing with the white cap on it is yeast because I don't use yeast, so it's just some of this stuff is like you know it's been there for four years.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna. I know what to get you now for Hanukkah,
0: but not the Kovali Pinot Grigio that hasn't been there Dude, for four a, years. A
1: liter and a, and it's well drunk. I mean, it has been <laughs> drunk. What how, I don't even what know what how mean? old that is. Like, how could that stay good for that long?
0: <laughs> it's not that old. Trust me. <laughs>
1: You're just downing magnums of Cavalli. I love it. <laughs> there's a lot
0: of people come over here. We drink a fair amount of wine. It's true. I like wine.
1: Uh, is this horseradish over here?
0: It looks like it might be. It also looks closed. Yeah. On the right is fish oil. So, you know, there's that. You're healthy.
1: Is that another Negro Modelo behind these wines? <laughs>
0: <laughs> could well be.
1: You have one Negro Modelo on every shelf of the door. I love it. I
0: like Negro Modelo and you can't find it, but I saw them advertising on a basketball game the other night. I guess Modelo thinks it's the new Corona and they're not only advertising... Modelo Especial, but Modelo Negro.
1: I love uh, Mexican beers. And I think that it was, you know, the the phases of beer were very like, you know, in America, especially. America got into I, this. I've said this many times in the podcast. And actually, you're the perfect person to talk to about this. Because I feel like the evolution of food in America and food, foodiness in America, it's a relatively recent thing, last 20, 25 years. And I always attribute it to this American mentality of when we put our minds to something, we are going to go as far as you can go. Like, we want to get on the moon, we're going to land on the moon. And in the early 2000s, it was like people started getting into like cooking and making beer in America and stuff like that and being local and seasonal. And no one knew about this stuff, but that american obsessiveness kind of zoned in on that like a like a heat-seeking missile and a couple decades later we're making some of the best beers in the world yeah the beers are good some of the best food in the world some of the best wines in the world
0: that's going a little far well, I mean, but okay i understand your to, point i mean look we're actually making some of the worst wines not, in the world n- not but, everyone yeah.
1: can be kovali, okay kovali
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kovali. It's like you'd be hard pressed to find a, <laughs> an under thirty dollar bottle of California wine that's as good as Covali Magnum, <laughs> uh, Magnum. Yes, for eight bucks or whatever. But I am—I
1: I will say—I do have a lot of American pride when it comes to where we've come with food and where we're going with food. I feel like we're doing a very good job of it. And I, and obviously a lot of it has to do with people like you bringing food to the forefront and and kind of making everyone feel like they can have a seat at the table. Like I feel like it used to be a very pretentious game and you kind of helped to uh, open it up to everyone.
0: Well, I do think there's value in showing people how simple cooking is is really great. I I wish I were as optimistic or as I wish I could shine as as happy a light on this as you are. I I feel like Maybe more people are cooking than were 20 years ago, and that's a, absolutely a good thing. But you know, more than 50% of meals are eaten outside of the home. Most of the calories Americans get are from ultra-processed food. I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but if everybody's fridge looked as sort of shabby as mine, but filled with real ingredients, we'd be much better off.
1: Agreed. I mean, I think we're talking about two different things. Like, yes, I think obviously there's a people as a whole in America, uh, their eating habits are god awful. And, you know, we're, we are the fast food nation. We invented and exported fast food to the rest of the world. But I do feel like within the, and I I almost don't want it to be pretentious, but within like the foodie world or like the world of like uh, the restaurant world, the level has gotten so much better across the board in terms of like, you can go to any little town now and get, if you seek it out, you can get good, well-made food with local ingredients and people aren't even being as preachy about it as they used to be. It's just a part of the conversation. It's just how people do it now.
0: I totally agree with that. But you know, that's probably like five percent of what people eat. But yeah, you're right. It's amazing. You can go almost anywhere and get good food if you look. And it it.
1: wasn't I mean, take me through like in the nineties what it was like to be a foodie, right? It was like
0: (laughs) back in the day. day.
1: (laughs) Back in the day, we're in the nineties, Tribe Called Quest just came out, Nirvana came out. I just I remember being, you know, being a teenager in New York and my parents being uh, pretty big foodies. There was a handful of fancy-ass French restaurants, and then everything else was kind of mediocre.
0: That's uh, early 90s anyway. Yes, that's true. I mean, by the 90s, there were good restaurants in New York, and there were even good restaurants. I lived in New Haven then. There were even some good restaurants in Connecticut, If you really want to talk about a bankrupt period, you have to go to the 70s. Wait, did you go
1: to Yale? Was that a humble, I went to Yale? No, it was not a humble, (laughs) I went to Yale. Yeah, I could
0: say I lived in Cambridge in the 70s and then lived in New Haven in the 80s, but I didn't go to Harvard and I didn't go to (laughs) Yale. But I did live in That's those hilarious. places. If you really want a bankrupt period, it's it's not the 90s, but the 70s. But the, the thing is that I think it was sort of the bankruptcy of restaurants that made me want to cook at home. Like, you just couldn't find good food unless you cooked it yourself for a long time. And literally, when I moved to New Haven, which was 1979, you had to drive across town to get soy sauce. You had to go to specialty stores to get olive oil. It was Parmesan. It was like... On the other hand, you could still go to farms and buy cream and eggs and chickens and things that then disappeared and then didn't come back until ten years ago. You know, where you right. could go to a local dairy and or a, a local farm and buy meat or, or whatever. So there's this kind of odd: one thing goes up and the other thing goes down. But the, the restaurant scene did start to get better in the '80s and con- continued to get better until COVID. I guess.
1: Well, here's my question. Why did you even care in the 70s? Like, I'm going to be a little culinarily anti-Semitic, if you don't mind.
0: I I mean, I can't wait. I'm very curious to hear what this means.
1: As a Sephardic Jew, uh, you know, we like to to really give it to the Oshkies about their food culture. (laughs) I'm assuming. (laughs) I didn't even know we were called Oshkies. I love it. So you, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you grew up Ashki in, uh, you know, in an Ashki household. Ashki food is 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 usually pretty awful. Yeah, there was
0: no hummus for sure. Yeah.
1: So what is it that made you even care about like I want to get good food. I want to go to farm. This is before Michael Pollan. This is before Omnivore's Dilemma made it cool. Like, why in the 70s did you care? It was
0: before Diet for a Small Planet. I think in part because the food in my house wasn't very good. But my grandmother, who was the real Ashki, could cook. So, you know, I do take a bit of exception to this. But it was such a limited palate. But the stuff that my grandmother did make, she made it really well. And and she made it with a lot of garlic and a lot of salt and a lot of paprika, a lot of schmaltz. And that, that stuff was good. My mother then became sort of more you know, young post-war housewife American and it wasn't the fault of her being Ashkenazi that the food wasn't that interesting it was the fault of her growing up in the 30s and 40s right. and then and then being assaulted with this marketing campaign which basically said your food will be a lot better if you put a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup in it. And I, and I lived in Manhattan. I grew up in Manhattan, so I was kind of I mean in fairness to my mother who's not with us, so she's not going to be offended, but really in fairness to her memory. She cooked every single night. It just wasn't that interesting, but she did, right. you know, the nourishment was there. But on the street there was corned beef, there was pizza, there were empanadas, there were You know, egg rolls. There are spare ribs. There are knishes there was stuff with like guts, regardless of its sort of ethnicity, it was out there and it had flavor. And really there was not, you know, with the possible exception of San Francisco, which I didn't get to until the late sixties, but was already pretty good. But there was really no American city that had that kind of depth of variety of food from so many different cuisines as New York did in the fifties and sixties. And I think that's where I grew up. And I was lucky because I got exposed to garlic and chili and cumin and paprika and you know toma- yeah. tomato sauce and fennel and mussels and clams and just kind of all a variety of different stuff, which none of the things I just mentioned did we have in our house. So if I hadn't left the apartment and gone and eaten street food, I wouldn't have known what good food was, but I did.
1: So what happened career-wise for you where – you said, this is the road I want to go down. Or was it something that you always wanted to do? Not
0: even close, no. I wanted to write, and I did start writing. But I was also cooking, because then when I left New York and moved, I moved first to Worcester, where I did go to school at, you know, the rough equivalent of Yale and Harvard, Clark University, Right. and then moved to Boston, the food in those two places was so god-awful that I was really, like, forced to cook. And as soon as I started cooking recipes from cookbooks, the food was better than anything, almost anything you could get outside that, So it was a complete sort of turnaround from the 60s when I was living in my parents' house, and the good food was out in Manhattan. Then I moved out of my parents' house. No one was cooking for me, but the bad food was out in Worcester and in Boston. But if I cooked by myself, I could eat well. So then I was trying to be a writer, and I was cooking, and I was cooking, and I was trying to be a writer. And then 1980, I wrote a food story, and it, it worked. And it got bought.
1: What was the food story about?
0: I talked my way into being the restaurant reviewer for the New Haven Advocate, but I sort of quickly converted that to a cooking column because there were no good restaurants in Connecticut. So after about 3 months, it was like, I'm done. I've done. there were 12 good restaurants within an hour's <laughs> drive of here. I did all 12 of them. Now every place I'm going to eat is terrible. Maybe I should write about, you know, how to make hummus, for example. And I started doing that. Then I was writing about home security and health insurance and fashion and music. I mean, I wrote about anything anyone would let me write about, but it kind of always came back to food. And within four or five years, I was a food writer. And it wasn't my goal, but I did like it. I mean, there's great things about it. And then I got better and better at it and presumably got better and better at it. And was able to sell more and more stories. Scott became food editor of the New Haven Register, then became editor of the old Cook's Magazine, which was the precursor of Cook's Illustrated, and then started writing for the Times and so on.
1: It's interesting to me, though, people who got into the food world when you did. It was before food was cool. It was before chefs were cool. There was no rock star chefs. The only people on TV were, you know, what, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child.
0: Graham Kerr. Yeah, there weren't very many. I mean, Jacques was a rock star. Julia was a rock star to those of us back then. I mean, Al... Shea Panisse opened in 1971. Alice Waters and the people who worked there and who worked, Jeremiah Tower, Bradley Ogden, Mm. Anne Rosenzweig, they were rock stars in the late, early 80s anyway. Bobby Flay in New York, David Boulay. Right. So by eighty five, it was really happening.
1: I'm just going to push back a little. It, yes, they were rock stars in their own right, but it seemed like they were rock stars within their worlds. Whereas now, I feel like chefs are like actual like international stars.
0: No, you're right. That was a television Um, thing. That was really a television thing. Um, Those people were stars to those of us who were paying attention. Right. And their restaurants did well. But it's true that when the food TV stuff happened, then Bobby Flay was, you know, Emerald really early on in that stuff. But I don't think that was particularly a good thing because then that's when people started to think, oh, the only good food is cooked by famous chefs, which is really sort of the opposite of what I wish people believed like really great food is cooked at home.
1: It's funny, it's an interesting double-edged sword because I think that yes, it did it did make it so that people just craved that like, oh, that I want to try that famous person's food, uh which is wrong, but it also just put more people into the food space. It got their heads thinking in that place which they they wouldn't have before and you know, so I think just I, I the, the the generous read, the positive read, the glass half full read is like thank god for the food network cuz it got so many people into food even though it, it, you know a lot of it is for the wrong reasons
0: it's not a simple the analysis isn't simple it's fine if people would like well, I'm gonna to go to New Orleans so I could eat at Emerald's restaurant. Great. Or I'm gonna to go to New York so I could eat at Mesa Grill, which was Bobby Flay's first famous restaurant. Great. But I always said, I haven't had this conversation in a while. I have to think if I still think this is right, but I think so. The real problem was if you watched, and I don't mean to be singling out Bobby, but I mean if you watched famous air quotes, famous chefs cook on TV, you would you would think, oh, well, I could never cook like that. And the fact is you probably never could cook like that. But, you know, they have sous chefs. They have people bringing them ingredients. It's what they do for a living. You're going to work. You have to do your own shopping. You have to do your own chopping. You're doing your own cooking. You're not going to cook like that. But that doesn't mean you can't cook great food. And sadly, that message got lost. Our voice, the voice of food writers in the 80s and 90s who were saying, yeah, restaurants are great, but you can do a lot of great stuff at home as well. Our our voice wasn't as loud as the voice of, like, groovy stuff is happening in restaurants. Groovy stuff is being done by great chefs.
1: I've been feeling that lately watching a lot of... Uh, I, I feel like a lot of Gordon Ramsay has been coming on my on my Instagram feed. And just, like, watching him cook... It, to me, as someone who knows how to cook, I feel like he adds five extra steps that are kind of unnecessary... Just to keep it looking like something needs to be happening, and he's got this kind of frenetic energy about him of like, okay, now, when, when, when it sounds like this, you need to put your pat of butter down right now. And it's like, it's so hyper-specific that you're like, yeah, if I didn't know how to cook and I was watching this, I'd be like, oh, there's no way I could do this.
0: Right. You know, it's sort of like watching Rafa Nadal play tennis and be like, well, I'm never going to play tennis because I certainly can't hit a backhand like that. And you can't. Right. It's true. But that's, you know, it's not like those, those people who are playing basketball or cooking or or whatever on television, that's what they do, and they're the best at it. So right. it doesn't mean you can't play basketball. It doesn't mean you can't hit a tennis ball. It doesn't mean you can't drive a car or cook. You can, and you're not going to do it that way, but it doesn't mean you can't do it well. And actually, cooking is one of the easier things to do well.
1: Well, that's why I loved your column, The Minimalist, because it actually did make it seem like, oh, I could do this. And it's it's much easier to get instruction from someone who is – a really great chef who's not a professional, but who knows how to cook and to make things palatable, easy to easy to digest. Uh, Menu wise, recipe wise, right? I mean, I love I love uh, Yotam Ottolenghi. I think he's great. I think his food is delicious. But if you get his cookbook, it takes thirty seven ingredients to make a salad.
0: I feel the same way. I love him personally, also, but I don't. Those recipes are too complicated for me, for the most part. I mean, I could do them. You can do them it's just not how i like i like to cook with what's probably my average dish has five ingredients in it and yeah. that, you know we're still i'm going to plug myself for a second cuz a lot of people say oh we miss the minimalist blah 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 but we have this newsletter bitman the bitman project bitmanproject.com and we do those kind of recipes all the time so it's not like i'm not still doing it I'm just not doing right. it in the new york time. <laughs>
1: Mark loves his Pinot Grigio, and that's a shocker, because for the most part, PG kinda sucks. Originally a cheap and simple wine from northeastern Italy, Pinot Grigio gained popularity in the 1970s and 1980s as a cheap way for college students to get hammered. But let's be real, the rise of Pinot Grigio wasn't about quality or terroir, it was about marketing and mass production winemakers realized that they could sell this wine for a decent profit by producing it in bulk and branding it as a trendy, fashionable beverage. Sure, there were some higher quality Pinot Grigios being made in the 90s and beyond, but the majority of this wine is still made to be cheap and accessible to the masses. It's a wine that's more about quantity than quality, and its popularity has led to a glut of mediocre Pinot Grigios flooding the market. <clears throat> Cavalli, <clears throat> Guys, let's talk one of my favorite meal kit delivery... ah, My favorite meal kit delivery company, okay? I just switched it right there because I thought about it. I was like, there's no one better than Green Chef. Green Chef makes eating well easy with plans to fit every." lifestyle yeah even yours whether you're keto paleo vegan vegetarian gluten-free or just looking to eat more balanced meals green chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences get everything you need at green market all right you don't have to go to the supermarket ever again you don't have to park get validation all that annoying stuff excuse me can you move your cart No, never again. Our one-stop shop for quick breakfast, brunch kits, wholesome lunches, and more. You can easily add on to your weekly order. If you're craving more servings of a favorite recipe, you want some, some more chicken Kiev, guess what? Now you can double the portions in your weekly order with just one click. And we're seasonal too, okay? Celebrate springtime with recipes featuring premium protein, seasonal organic produce, and sustainably sourced seafood. I love Green Chef. Again, a lot of people are like, Dan, why would you use that? You you know how to cook. It's exactly why I want to use it because I don't want Postmates delivering me food. I still want to make food, but I don't want to go to the supermarket, make my life easy, send me stuff that I can make myself. I love it. I'm a big, big fan. Go to greenchef.com slash greeneggs60 and use code greeneggs60 to get 60% off. 60% off. That's more than f- half. Plus free shipping, all right? Go to greenchef.com slash greeneggs60. Green Chef, guys, the number one meal kit for eating well. All right, I'm going to get to the questions I ask every guest towards the uh, middle of the pod. Uh-oh. Is, these, are, these are the gotcha questions. Uh, I'm so scared.
0: All right, what is your earliest food memory? I know the answer to that question. It's my dad cooking me scrambled eggs the night that my the morning after my sister was born, so I was four. Wow. I do remember that. Or I made it up, but you know recovered memories but i think i do remember yeah that. either way i see it
1: i love that uh,
0: and it's funny because my father never cooked it was like the only time he ever cooked anything but that's probably why i remember. like i've it.
1: never had so. worse eggs in my life <laughs> 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 what is your death row meal so let's think of a good reason for mark bittman to be on death row
0: well i do have a fantasy of i'm not sure i should say this out loud because then it'll well, I'm never going to do it. I do a fantasy of robbing a bank. So I suppose, you know, if I robbed a bank and I was carrying a gun, it could be like one of those movies. It's really not going to happen, but...
1: It would be fun, though, because you'd have a mask on, but your voice is very, very noticeable. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Be like, it's that Mark Bittman guy.
1: <laughs> well, I I would like to cook for myself,
0: but I suppose that's not going to be... So then if it's, I can't cook for myself, I'm going to ask Jean-Georges Van Gerichten to cook for me, and he could do whatever he wants, and it'll be fine. So you want to... So I don't have, like, a set. I never... People are always like, what's your favorite meal, or what do you cook every Thursday? It's always... I open that refrigerator, and you know what I didn't show you is that I have four freezers. I literally have four freezers. So, I mean, I have the one attached to the refrigerator. I have one next to the refrigerator. I have two in the garage, and they're filled with stuff. So, it's always like, what do we feel like having tonight? I mean, in the morning, it's like, what do I think I should cook tonight? I look in the refrigerator. I think about what's in the freezer. And it's kind of what I feel like. Or I go shopping, of course. But it's I don't have a favorite meal. I don't have a favorite ingredient. I it's just I just like everything and it's kinda of like what makes itself available. I'd like to think I'd be that way on death row <laughs> also.
1: Yeah, whatever you got. Just make You'd it good. Like, well, it is strawberry season, so... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> You'd ask them to go to the farmer's market outside of the prison. You know, it's funny. I do think it's a lot easier to cook, actually, if you are going to you know farms or farmer's markets. Because you got a handful of ingredients that you can use. And they're good. Whereas when you go to the supermarket, when you go to the supermarket, you're so overwhelmed with different shit. Like, my... My brain is just like it's very hard to like figure out what to cook when you walk through a supermarket.
0: Well, this woman just said we just interviewed this woman named Manu, who's about to open a restaurant, in New Yorker Brazilian woman, and um she said, Don't kill the food twice, which I thought was really hilarious. She was like, You already killed it to bring it into your kitchen. If it's a fish or a vegetable or whatever, you killed it. Don't kill it a second time. And that's kind of like um Alice Waters, I'm paraphrasing, but Alice Waters always says, the secret to food at Chez Panisse is we take good ingredients so we don't fuck them up. And that's the thing. Start with good ingredients and don't mess around that
1: much. What is the best high-end meal you've ever had? Uh,
0: Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I could tell you the three most memorable. It's funny, two of them involve the same guy. I went to Jean-Louis at Watergate in the mid-'80s. And that Jean-Louis Paladin was sort of the first – he was one of the first celebrity chefs, and he was very into local ingredients, and he was very insistent that people ship him stuff as quickly as they could. And he made really, really great food. He had a restaurant at the Watergate. He later was the first guy to relocate to Vegas, and he had a restaurant at this kind of – Old school, second rate hotel, still there called the Rio. It was like an original fancy mm. hotel that had seen better mm. days. Now it's really seen better days. Anyway, he opened there. He had a great restaurant there, but he was sadly ill and dying, and he died probably died in two thousand, I think, or not much later than that. Um, and there was a series of benefits for him, and I got to I got to cook at one of them, but the night before. I cooked at one all these famous chefs cooked the meal sort of for each other and Daniel Balou was there Jean-Georges was there Jean Louis of course um uh, Eric Repair few three or four others Michel Richard who sadly is no longer with us and that was like incredible meal and then the probably the the time my my head really was blown off was when I when Jean-Georges Grangerish then opened the Lafayette and I got an assignment to write about The food there.
1: Lafayette, the the restaurant Lafayette downtown?
0: No, it was 64th and Park. That's where it was, maybe 63rd. And the restaurant was called Lafayette. And I think the hotel was a Drake at the time. But George had been in Boston, and he was like so on fire that the management group of these hotels brought him to New York. It was like, we're wasting him in Boston. This guy's like a superstar. And he came to New York, and he started cooking, and Ruth Reichel gave him three stars right away. And then she went back six months later and changed it to four stars. I mean, it was that. It was so important at the time. And we became friends and he cooked for me one lunch that went on for hours and hours and hours. And well, I ate many great meals cooked by Jean Georges. So I'm certainly lucky in that regard.
1: Best low-end meal you've ever had. This could be Mm. a street taco. It could be a hot, the dirty dog. I
0: used to eat hot dogs on the street all the time. I imagine they were better than they are now. I ho- I like to think they were better than they are now. I mean, I grew up eating street food, hot dogs, knishes, as I said, sliced pizza, 15 cents, a low-end yeah. meal. I mean, I do remember this when I was – Sort of wrapping up at the time, so this wasn't all that long ago. There's a place on, uh, I think, Forsyth Street or Allen Street that did, like, Big Dish Chicken. I think it was called Big Dish Chicken, and it was chicken with, like, giant spicy chicken with noodles and potatoes, I believe. That was really good. But, you know, I still... Yeah, there's just a, I mean, that's a, that's a really hard question because I do have an affinity for. Last time I was back in Worcester, I went to George's Coney Island, which is um, hot dogs, and yeah. uh, still there. It looks just like it did when I went to school. I mean, I yeah, I do like that stuff.
1: Yeah, um, what is your favorite drunk food? When you've had all your, what is it, cavalli? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I drink while I'm cooking. I don't drink late at night, and I don't eat after I've. I mean I make dinner and then I don't That's yeah. not that's not the right question for me. I don't have an answer. <laughs>
1: what about your favorite hangover I mean, cure? I,
0: although I know you think that I drink a magnum of Kovali every day, <laughs> I'm actually only very rarely hungover. So I'll tell you, my favorite hangover cure is going for a run. That's the way to cure a hangover. Nerd. <laughs> Sorry. Because as you're running, you start running and you feel like you're going to die. Right. And then the poisons start leaving your system because you sweat them out. So you actually, it's the only time you run where you feel better as you go farther than instead of worse.
1: Running with a hangover is really good. I mean, I'm still going to stay home and get a egg, you know, breakfast burrito, but
0: I'll be thinking about you. All right, good. I don't know why you think that would cure a hangover, but okay. <laughs>
1: I don't think it does, but it Or, feels you know, nice. hair of the dog, of course. I don't believe in the hair of the dog stuff. Hair of
0: the dog works, man. Y- you think so? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. I'm just picturing you with a Sippy cup full of of like negro negro go, going on your run in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this I'm fascinated by this question for you. Who's your favorite celebrity food personality besides Danadu?
0: I was thinking along different lines, <laughs> but yeah, there is that. I mean, I have some heroes, so then the they have to qualify as heroes and celebrities. So let's let's let you determine whether someone is a celebrity. Okay. You know who Marion Nessel is?
1: No. Tell me who.
0: See, Marion Nestle is like the YN of food politics. She started writing about food and nutrition and why the food system is as fucked up as it is. She started writing about that stuff before, pretty much before anyone else or anyone else of our generation. But Alice Waters, she's kind of a hero.
1: I actually met her randomly a couple weeks ago outside of this restaurant Mother Wolf in L.A., and uh, she was very, very kind and and cool. She's and great.
0: Sweet. She goes to L.A. a lot now because um, her daughter had a kid, so and her daughter lives in L.A.
1: What is your desert island food? So you're trapped on a desert island. You are gonna have one thing you have to eat for the rest of your life. You're never gonna get but tired. does it, of it sustain me? It doesn't. Need I get to, to stay alive. You. Don't take it too literally. Some people are like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I want coconut water.
0: No, it's gonna be like milk. I don't know what you. <laughs> Like, it's the thing that I'm going to just want every single.
1: Yes, you'll never get How tired
0: complicated
1: of it. can it be? Very. Can,
0: it, can it have many components? Like, I could say, for example, <laughs> steak free with a side of artichokes.
1: Hey, if you want that to be your breakfast, lunch, and no, dinner? No, but
0: I'm just saying, for example. <laughs> that is allowed. All right. I'm, I'll get back to you on that one. Okay. Uh, that's got to be taken seriously because yeah. I can't imagine the. Might be like lasagna.
1: That's a good one. I, that's not. That's a good one. Listen, I think I just th- want some lasagna now. <laughs> I think lasagna is good because I think pizza is a good one because pizza is always great as breakfast. It's good as lunch I know, and but you know how shitty it makes you feel. Oh God! You're on a desert island. You're not going anywhere. Just fucking lay yeah, down and, and you're enjoy, gonna be <laughs> enjoy <laughs> your gonna life. Be Working out. <laughs> what if I say
0: kovali? I'm now. I'm angling for the. Cavalli, because you said I did not have to worry about nutrition. What if I just want to like drink all the time?
1: You know what? That's a smart thing that no one's done. No one's actually said alcohol.
0: I'm, I'm angling for the Cavalli sponsorship right <laughs> I now. I
1: think. Listen, he the Cavalli
0: endorsement. Cavalli, if you're this listening, this is the <laughs> Food with Mark Bittman, the <laughs> podcast brought to you by
1: Cavalli. Cavalli never knew they'd have such a highbrow spokesperson. <laughs>
0: No one's ever heard of it. I think they have it at this one store that I go to. But yeah. No,
1: it was like they they thought Kid Rock would be the spokesperson They're like, Well, wait, we can get Bitman? <laughs> <laughs> what food can't you stand eating?
0: The literal truth about this is that I used to have some foods I didn't like, and now I cannot think of a food I don't like. Really? I mean, I'm sure you know. If someone said, "Oh, we're gonna have some monkey brains." You know, I might right. hit the pause button. But in sort of ordinary foods that everybody eats, I really, I used to not like celery. So if you'd ask me that question, I'd say, "Oh, I hate celery. I love celery." So I mean, you can I give
1: think, the you can give the nerdy food writer answer of processed foods. Uh, but it wouldn't be true. So <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be true. But, I, yeah, there's a reason they're. Different.
0: I don't think processed foods hyper-processed foods should exist, or at least certainly not in the way they do now, but it doesn't mean I don't eat them. I'm subject to the same, you know, we're all subject to marketing and that marketing is um, so brilliantly done yeah. that it's, it's the rare person who doesn't sort of fall for it now and then.
1: What is your favorite processed food? Well, I
0: like Good and Plenty, for example, yeah. I, but I like potato chips a lot. And I mean, I certainly like a cheeseburger. So there's a Fried chicken. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff.
1: Yeah, but fried really. chicken isn't necessarily processed food. No, but I like Popeye. Yeah, the KFC. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't, It's not that I eat that stuff much. Like, if there's potato chips in the house, I'm like, yeah. oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> potato chips. But I don't buy them because... If they're there, I'll eat. Yeah, it's
1: dangerous. I feel that way about peanut M and M's. If they're if they're around, they have no chance. Yeah, I used
0: to. I don't like them anymore because they got. You know, I don't want to be a old guy, but like that stuff has gotten worse. Like they're using like worse chocolate than they used when I was a kid, or maybe my palate's gotten better. It's not impossible, but. Knowing the way things go, they're just like, oh, let's cut this corner, let's cut that corner. We don't have to use real chocolate in peanut M and M's. We can use some stuff that's a little bit like real chocolate mm. or whatever.
1: Yeah, I'm curious when soy lecithin started to take over cocoa butter. I, I don't know if that's a recent thing or that's always been. I would love to know if there were if there was soy lecithin in like the original M and M's and candy bars and stuff. I doubt there was. Right, I. I can't help you. I don't know. I don't want to speculate. My favorite question, last question. Uh, What are or what is your restaurant pet peeve? Oh,
0: man. This is bad because I could go on. No, I like it. Not having salt on the table is really that. Wow. Like, you're so young, you might not even remember that there used to be salt on the table. But when they stopped putting salt on the table, I was like, you mean your cooking is so spot on that you cater to people who don't like much salt and to people who do like a lot of salt. And so usually when I sit down, I try to remember when I order to ask the person to please bring some salt and pepper before the food comes. Because I like like a lot of salt.
1: That's so interesting. No one's ever said that one. That's a great one. That's the one. That's the one.
0: (laughs) Everything else pales next to that. What people say like, What I don't like is when the server doesn't come over right away. Is that what people say? Yeah, you get a lot of that. (laughs) Well, tough luck. Someone's waiting on you. You're lucky.
1: (laughs) Wait, this is great. No one's ever said the salt and pepper. It's true, though. When did chefs have the hubris of saying, oh, don't worry, it'll be perfect?
0: I think it started in sort of fancier places. And then they realized they could get away with it. And it is an extra thing
1: to do. Yeah. Yeah. but it's not a big thing to do. That's a good one. Do you ever do you specify the salt? Are you like, can you can I have some flaky kind of flaky Himalayan pink salt, Vivalen please? No, Malden. No, but you can taste the difference. But still, you gotta.
0: My friend Charlie, who's another what would you call us? Ashkis. Yeah, Ashkis. Another Ashki says, you know, Jews Jews need a lot of salt. I don't know if it's true, but we grew up eating. I, my mother's food was very bland, so there was like salt, mustard, ketchup. Worcestershire, I mean, what else was there? There wasn't just a lot. You just, you just automatically put salt on everything. Yeah. I know you're not supposed to do that, but, you know, studies show that people get most of their salt, not from a salt shaker, but from hyper-processed food, right. so I'm not too worried about it.
1: Yeah, I think you'll be all right. You're, you're countering it with all those rutabagas. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, I cannot wait to be back in New York so we can uh, share a magnum of Cavalli together. Uh, sometimes we have lots yeah uh Uh, tell
0: come on over tell
1: the people where they can find so
0: MarkBitman.com, bitman.com britmanproject.com is the newsletter free subscription it's better if you pay but it is a free subscription and the podcast is food with mark bitman but it's really with mark and kate bitman so might have to change the name actually.
1: As, as I say, come for the mark, stay for the Kate.
0: That was very nice of you. She liked that.
1: <laughs> She's delightful. Listen, one of the honors of starting a food podcast uh, is that I finally get to meet my heroes, and you're one of them. Uh, thank you so much for doing the pod. Uh, keep doing what you're doing for the world. You're as good as they get. So thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks,
0: Dan. I look forward to your comedy podcast when you get around to it. But yeah, this is great in the meantime.
1: <laughs> Take care.